living in Boston, it's not too difficult to identify with this event that we read about in Mark 2 because, well, right about this time every year, uh, right out in front of Park Street, uh, there is a similar scene that takes place uh, as Tom Brady passes by in a duck boat uh, and thousands upon thousands of Patriots fans just are, are attracted and, and, and pressed in together to see if they could get just a glimpse of this superstar. And I have to admit, working at the church and seeing this happen year after year, uh, it, it, I have to say it's nice to actually have a break from this chaos. <laughs> I actually think it's... Uh, a kind and noble gesture uh, for us to allow another NFL team to have the Lombardi Trophy for a year, don't you think? Well, let's turn uh, our attention to the crowd in this story and the Savior who is at the center of it that led everyone to say, we have never seen anything like this. What in the world? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us insight by the gift of your Holy Spirit, that we would understand who should be at the center of our lives, this great work that this mighty Savior has wrought to bring about life and salvation for us. Lord, bless this congregation as we consider this passage we ask in Christ's name, amen. The first word that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Mark is that the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this good news. That is an extraordinary claim. When the disciples were with Jesus, Jesus was speaking uh, through a number of, of kingdom parables. He says to them in the midst of it, blessed are your eyes because of what they see. Blessed are your ears because of what they hear. For many prophets, many righteous people came before you who long to hear what you hear and long to see what you see, but they did not hear it, and they did not see it. The central message of the Gospel of Mark, the central message of Jesus was the kingdom of God is at hand. That indeed was the very good news in which he was proclaiming. But the logical question would be, well, how can you prove it? How, how do we know, in fact, the kingdom of God is actually at, at hand? This proclamation is true. And the answer is Isaiah 35. We just read it a moment ago. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. In that day, listen, in that day, eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like deer, and the mute tongues will rejoice. 
Well, it would be by the means of the manifestation of miracles. They would serve as the proof text that indeed the kingdom of God is at hand. And Mark doesn't want us to miss this. Michael Balboni last week shared with us that the gospel of Mark, 16 chapters, is really divided into two halves, right at chapter 8, right in the middle of it. The second half is all about walking along with Jesus on his way to the cross. Well, what then is the first half of the gospel of Mark about? It's all about proving the fact that the kingdom of God truly is at hand. So he lays out 15 different miracles. Uh, the uh, healing of, of the body, of, of, of demonic exorcism, uh, miraculously feeding thousands of people, taming the wind and, and the waves. All of that was meant to, well, prove the fact that the kingdom of God was at hand. And that actually contrasts against the, the, the last half of Mark. Uh, the first half, 15 miracles. In fact, there's two other places where it says, and Jesus did many more miracles, uh, healing people, uh, freeing people from unclean spirits. It's all in the first half. The second half, we only see three miracles. Except, of course, the greatest of all, the resurrection at the end. But these three other miracles, they, they don't really have the same impact around proving the fact that the kingdom of God is here. They're used in other contexts for other reasons in the Gospel of Mark. So, of course, if the kingdom is here, this kingdom inbreaking has occurred, well, the reason for that kingdom uh, coming must be true as well. well. Why is the kingdom here? It's because the king himself has arrived. He's the one who has ushered in the kingdom. So when John the Baptist was thrown into prison by Herod, he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Or should we expect somebody else? And how does Jesus reply to them? He says, go back to John. Tell him what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. The miraculous did not only testify to the fact that the kingdom of God was here, uh, it also identified the king himself. And so throughout the whole gospel of Mark, particularly the first half, you see Jesus exercising uh, sovereign authority and power, authority over the demonic, authority over nature, the wind and the wave. He has authority over infirmity. When he spoke, people said, I've never heard anyone speak with such authority, completely different than the teachers of the law in which they were uh, commonly heard. The gospel of Mark is all about the kingdom of God, which is at hand, and the king who is ushered in that kingdom. But look, Jesus didn't 
uh, preached this message, Mark didn't write his gospel to be just a big FYI. Listen to what he says, what Jesus says, the first thing he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he says, repent and believe. Believe the good news. This message was meant to bring about a response, a response of repentance, a response of faith from those who would actually take it to heart. Michael Balboni last week as he preached, uh, he, he emphasized the issue of repentance, this posture of humility, this willingness to examine ourselves deeply, to confess sin, to embrace change in our lives, to become unstuck, to, to begin to move towards a reconciled relationship with Christ and to live out the kind of life in which he's calling you to live. This week, we turn towards, not repentance, but we turn towards faith. What's faith in light of the presence of the kingdom of God and the king who's come to proclaim it? And we do so because in this particular chapter, chapter 2 at this point, this is the first point in which faith and the word faith is actually applied to an individual, or in this case, to a group of people. This Greek word pistis or pisteo, it sometimes is translated as faith or to have faith. Other times belief or to believe in. Uh, it's used here first and then it's used 20 more times throughout the gospel of Mark in his 16 chapters. So what is faith? What's it look like? What does it look like? So we find out in this colorful event what it does look like. Mark tells us, well, here Jesus is. He's speaking in a house, a home. Uh, maybe it's Peter and Andrew's, uh, but a place that's familiar to him where he may be staying. And a crowd begins to assemble. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about this crowd, except it just kept getting bigger and bigger. It filled the entire interior where he was speaking. Then it began to flow outside into uh, the yard or the street. Uh, it was a large crowd. The only other thing we know about this crowd is that in the midst of them were teachers of the law or scribes. Uh, presumably they were close to Jesus uh, because he interacts with them. Uh, and the operative word that he used for, uh, Mark uses to describe them is that they were sitting there. Uh, maybe the whole crowd was made of religious leaders, we don't know, but at least some of them were sitting there before Jesus. So here Jesus is, he's preaching and talking the word, this good news. And what happens? Well, uh, Wood, debris, dust, mud, palm fronds, whatever other material. I don't know what the ceilings were made of, but whatever the materials were, they began to fall down on these dignified leaders who were sitting around Jesus. I mean, this is, this is Rich Elliott and Steve uh, McGaffs, our facilities manager. This is their worst nightmare. The whole building just collapsing uh, on top. Uh, 
as, you know, what's happening? Well, they, they, they look up and try to figure out what's going on. And what do they see? Well, they see another crowd. This time, a smaller one. A smaller one than the first one. It's only made up of five people. We don't know much about this crowd either, except that one of them is paralyzed uh, in some manner, helpless to move around on his own. And there his four friends are, lowering him through the hole they just made uh, so that he might lay before the feet of Jesus. Two crowds, a large one sitting still around Jesus, and a smaller one who takes upon themselves this great burden, this dear friend of theirs, brings him across the town square, refuses to be hindered when they arrive. They see a large crowd. We are not going to be stopped. We're going to find some way to get this friend to this Jesus. So they go up a ladder or steps carrying the weight. You ever carry a person? Carrying the weight of this man up the steps, up a ladder. Then they begin digging and chopping a hole in the roof, just interrupting this subdued group of people sitting down below. And they lower this man to the feet of Jesus. A large crowd sitting and a small crowd of four together working in unison, biceps straining as they struggle to gently lower their friend before the Savior. Which group, which group is a model of faith for you? Verse 5 says, when Jesus saw what was happening, saw this group above him, verse 5 says, when Jesus saw their faith. The faith that is expressed is this group of four up above, standing. When Jesus saw their eyes and saw their hands, and saw their action, and saw their heart, he saw genuine, genuine faith. What does faith look like? It looks like those who are standing on this rooftop. Faith in Christ it begins where Michael's talked last week. It begins with an honest assessment of your life. Do I need Jesus? Do I need him? Yes or no? This group of friends, they all knew that they were helpless to change this life circumstance in which they were addressing. The paraplegic knew he would never walk on his own and his friends knew they didn't have the power to help him walk but in this instance, perhaps they knew somebody who could. Somebody who could meet this need in this context. The only hope they had was Jesus. Faith is not only acknowledging 
our need for Christ. It also believes that Jesus has the power and the authority to address that need. Do I believe that Jesus has the power and the authority to address the deepest need of my life? Yes or no? Do I believe he has that power or not? The story before the leper who was healed by Jesus, he says to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You can do this. I totally trust you with my life to transform me, to make me whole, to heal me, to restore me. Faith believes that Jesus has the power to address those deep needs of your life. Faith not only acknowledges the need for Christ and believes he can address that need, but faith drives us to do whatever it takes to meet the Savior. Whatever hinders, whatever stands in the way, whatever holds us back, whatever, whatever obstructs, we cast it aside, we overcome it. It's left behind in order to make our way to the Savior. Paul says, but whatever was gained to me, I now consider lost for the sake of knowing Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom sake I have lost all things with a smile on his face. I consider them garbage, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Am I willing to lay everything aside, cast everything off, anything that stands in the way to know this person of Christ? When Jesus saw this crowd of five, four standing on the roof with ropes in their hands and this man laying before him, unable to move, he saw genuine faith. And Jesus was moved to compassion. We know that because of the first word he says. He says, son, son. He viewed this man like a father would view his son crippled and broken before him. And he's moved with great compassion to respond. But he responds in the most unexpected way. He doesn't say, what would you expect? Get up and walk. It's not what he says. What does he say? He says, your sins are forgiven. Why in the world would he say that at this very moment? Well, 
you know, maybe he already knew this man. He, he knew that this man had weighty sin, uh, uh, specific issues of transgression, which was upon this man's heart and were known to Jesus because of their previous conversation. We don't know the backstory. That could be the case. And, and so Jesus believing it, the most important thing for this man was simply to hear your sins are forgiven. He spoke those words. Again, we don't know the backstory, so that very may well be the case. But you, you would expect that if it was that Mark uh, would have given us some background to point out this was the motivation for Jesus to say that. You know, like with the woman at the uh, well, John's gospel is John's revealing different things about uh, the woman. Jesus revealing different things about her past. It, it doesn't seem to be the main motivation here. Well, it could be that Jesus chose this occasion, like he does in many other circumstances, to use physical realities, physical, in this case, healing, to point to deeper spiritual truths uh, about uh, the healing of the soul. Rather than physical healing, he turns the attention to the soul. Sin, it is, it's a deadly, deforming laceration on the soul that, that mars the spirit of mankind, leading to certain death. So perhaps he uses the situation to, to pronounce restoration of the soul before he pronounces restoration of the body. And, and that may be the case. A number of other miracles, he does the same thing. When he feeds the 5,000, he then uh, says, I am the bread of life. Uh, when he heals the, the crippled hand of a man on the Sabbath, he then turns to the spiritual reality and says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And uh, when he curses the tree, uh, then he begins to talk about the application of that afterwards. But the interesting thing is Jesus didn't follow that pattern here. He, he didn't do the miracle and then apply it to some greater spiritual reality. He did just the opposite. He talked about the spiritual reality first, and in this case, did the physical healing later. Why would he do that? I, I, I think uh, it's, it's simply because of those who were sitting around him. It's because of the crowd who was sitting, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees who were sitting. Don't, don't confuse these men with, you know, like Mary and Martha. Martha's busy in the, the kitchen and, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, just soaking in the teaching, loving everything in which he, she, he's conveying to her in that context. That's not who these men are. Luke, uh, in his gospel, tells the same story, but the, the, the story right before it, uh, a couple stories right before it, he says that Jesus was in Nazareth just a few days before. He was in Nazareth preaching in a synagogue. And in this uh, context, the teachers of the law took a hold of him, kicked him out, took him over to a cliff, and were ready to throw him off uh, the cliff. Jesus knew what was in the heart of those who were sitting around him filling this room. He knew why they were there. They sat there not out of faith, but they were sat there to find fault 
in what he had to say. They were there ready to argue with him, to prove he was wrong, catch him making a mistake, find some reason to dismiss him. They had no need for him in their minds. They, they did not believe what he was preaching was true or accurate. And probably they perceived him as a great threat to the way they were living their own lives. And so there they sat in judgment of him, waiting to pounce. So you know what I think Jesus did? I think he pushed their button. He made a statement that though it was wholly true, was surely just to send them through the roof, so to speak. There was a hole there, right? So. Son, your sins are forgiven. Almost taking the perspective of a father. You know, father, son. Uh, your sins are forgiven. Can't you just hear them screaming inside? Because Jesus could. What does this man... Who... What? What in the world? Who does this man think he is? He is the very definition of a blasphemer, acting as if he is God himself. Only God can forgive things. That's what was going on in their minds. And you know what? They were partially right. The only one who could forgive sin in the way in which Jesus was pronouncing it in this context was God himself. You know, when my uh, boys were little, Isaiah and Josiah, they used to like to hit each other. I could comfort the one who was hit. I could reprimand the one who was doing the hitting but the one thing I could not do was to extend forgiveness to the one who was offended. Only the offender, or I'm sorry, only the offended can forgive the offender. That's just the basic principles of sin and offense. Only God could forgive sin because he is the one who is most offended by it. So they were partially true, but what the scribes were not willing to consider was the possibility, just the possibility, that Jesus was not a blasphemer, that the one standing in their presence was God himself, veiled in flesh with the authority, the power to forgive sin. And so Jesus calls them out and he asks, why are you thinking these things? Why are you thinking these things? They didn't get a chance to answer, did they? But I know if they did, they would have said, because you are not God. And so, what does Jesus do? He does something that no man could do. He heals a known power. 
paraplegic in sight of everyone to see. And the teachers of the law, they, they got it. They, they, they knew what was going on in this context and in others. In fact, in, in the very next chapter, they accused Jesus of being the chief of demons. Why? Well, because he had power that no person could possibly possess. But they wanted to chalk it up to the powers of darkness. Jesus asked them in verse 8, which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? It's a trick question, isn't it? You're probably thinking, I don't know, which was it? They're both equally easy to say, aren't they? You just say the words, your sins are forgiven, or stand up. In terms of the words themselves, very easy to say. But which one of these can a man bring about by his own power? The answer, they're both impossible, aren't they? No one can do that under and by their own power or strength. Only the power and presence of God himself could do either of these. But if he can perform an observable, tangible act, which could only be brought about by the power of God, would that not also possibly indicate that he also has the power and the authority to forgive sins as well. And so he heals this man. And the logical conclusion is that you should take him at his word. That he therefore has the right to forgive sins. But you have to admit that the answer to that question of whether he has the right to forgive sins, it's just still kind of hanging there, isn't it? Uh, it's sort of answered, but not really. Not, not least, not yet. Well, and that's exactly how Mark wants it. That it's just kind of hanging there, yet to be answered. That's the shape of Mark's gospel. Because... You know, in the first half, you know, we, we get to see he has the power to uh, cast out demons. Why do we know that? Because we see him do it. He has the power to heal uh, the body. Why do we know that? Because he did it. We, we know uh, he has the power over nature because he stopped the winds and the waves. It was all observable. We saw that he had the power to do it. But it was going to take the second half, the eight long chapters at the end of his gospel to certifiably prove that Jesus has the power to forgive sin through his death and resurrection, the most important miracle in which your life and my life truly depend upon. It's upon his resurrection 
through his death that we can wholeheartedly proclaim that Jesus has the right to forgive your sin. Your sin. The story isn't really that hard to enter into, is it? it? You have two crowds. You have the large one sitting. You have the small one standing on the roof looking down. They're all watching Jesus. They all see the same person. They all see the same things transpire. Which crowd are you in today? Are you sitting or are you standing? Well, of course you're all sitting, right? You're all sitting. But I mean, like in your heart, are you sitting or are you standing? Those five men, they knew that the desires of their heart could only be met by Christ. Do you believe the deepest desires of your heart can only be met by Jesus, that he has the power to meet those deepest needs. These five men sure did. Do you, are you willing to cast everything off? Everything that hinders you from having an authentic, intimate relationship with Christ. Those men certainly did everything they could to meet Christ. You know what? If those two questions, if you answer them with the affirmative, yes, I believe Jesus can and will meet my needs. And I'm willing to drop everything to meet him. When Jesus looks at you, he sees genuine faith. And you know, I, I don't even know. This group of four, I don't know. I, in fact, I, I don't even think they knew Jesus was God at that point. I, I don't think this guy laying on the ground, he may not have even known he needed forgiveness of sins at that moment but I do know they all knew they needed Jesus. They needed Jesus. And I suspect the rest of that other important stuff, they learned about it as time went on. They figured it out. I don't know what you think about Jesus today. I don't know theologically where you are. But I'm just wondering... Do you, do you feel like you need Jesus? Of course, you may be a part of this larger crowd that's described in this passage. You're sitting so very close to Jesus, but your heart is farther than, from Jesus than the east is from the west. You may be sitting here in judgment of him. You may doubt his existence, his identity, his power. You may sit here offended by his teaching, believing that your worldview is far superior than his. You may read of his miracles and believe that they just ain't so. 
Let me ask you the same question that Jesus asked those sitting around him. Why are you thinking these things? I can imagine how very nicely they all sat, how well they were dressed, how attentive they seemed as they sat quietly before him. But I hope you're not fooling yourself because you're certainly not fooling the Lord. He knows what's in a man's heart. I'm sure that there were those in that crowd, that larger crowd, who were not hostile to Christ, who were truly curious, who wanted to see if all the things that were said about this man were actually true. And that may be you here today. And I'm glad you're here and you may walk away going say, saying, that was amazing what just happened in that sanctuary. But listen, eventually you are going to end up in one crowd or the other. You're going to end up either standing or just sitting by. You're going to end up laying your life at the feet of Jesus or you're get, going to end up just walking away. Which crowd are you in? The one who stands up or the one who's sitting? In your heart, stand up. You may need to stand up today. Stand up. Let's pray. Lord, we again ask for the gift of your Holy Spirit because, Lord, we confess we lack faith. Oh, Lord, help our unbelief. We have hearts that cannot be changed just by logical thinking, by emotion, or by any other means. Lord, we need your spirit to penetrate our hearts, to move us from sitting where we take a stand and walk beside you for eternity. We ask that you do such a great work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.